Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Keith Kruger, one of the hosts on the Intellectual History Channel. Today, we're very fortunate to be joined by Mikhail Elasevich, Professor of Economic History and Thought. Professor Elasevich is a specialist in the study of 20th century development institutions and ideas, the history of the social sciences, as well as international and global economic history. His books include his 2009, The Political Economy of the World Bank, The Early Years, which has been translated into five languages. He co-authored Inequality, A Short History in 2018, which has been translated into Italian and Chinese. Today, he joins us to discuss his latest book, published last year by Columbia University Press, Albert O. Hirschman, An Intellectual Biography. Professor Elasevich, McKelly, thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you. McKelly, your latest book is an intellectual biography of A.O. Hirschman. Let's start with the genesis of this project. Um, how'd you come to write this particular book? Well, thanks for asking this. Uh, uh, this is a book that I always wanted to write. Uh, uh, there are several uh, things that I like very much about Hirschman uh, and uh, First of all, his interest in the unexpected consequences of social action, his uh, interest in uh, surprising historical turns uh, uh, that are at the basis of what he called his uh, possibilism, uh, and attention to what is uh, uh, perhaps uh, improbable, uh, but nonetheless possible, instead of uh, studying just merely what is probable in uh, social change. And on this, uh, it is also based, is um, quoting his bias for hope, the importance that doubting had for him uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, highlighting just the hard certainties. So I've always been uh, uh, very curious about uh, Hirschman and very interested in his uh, approach. Uh, and then in 2013, Jeremy Edelman's uh, book on Hirschman was published uh, called The Worldly uh, Philosopher. So for a while, I set the project aside, but then I realized that there was room for a book like 
this one, like my book, specifically an intellectual biography, because as uh, uh, Edelman writes, uh, his book actually is um, not the story of the works, uh, but the story behind them, uh, not the story of uh, Hirschman's scholarship, but of uh, Hirschman's life, or as he, he put it, the, the biographical backstory of a life's ideas. Mm. And instead, my book devotes less space uh, to the life of Hirschman, though, uh, as you've seen, the first chapter is uh, uh, very much about the adventure of uh, the young Hirschman in Europe. And my book uh, actually devotes more uh, space and zooms in on his work. Um, so so really, it's it's nice to have both uh, both works there. I, I, it's interesting. I saw a few years back uh, Edelman's book translated into Chinese uh, in a bookstore here. Um, so you, you've got uh, both bookends there. Yes, well, I hope they, they are considered, I, th I consider the two books as complementary books. That's a good way to put it, really. Uh, in the preface, uh, you point out that Hirschman was uh, no ivory tower intellectual and that as a scholar, he focused on particular problems and providing useful responses. Uh, can you share a few examples and the implications uh, it, it had on his field of study? Yes, uh, Hirschman wrote uh, several books, uh, uh, collections of articles, uh, uh, journal articles, uh, and uh, in several cases he uh, was also pretty abstract. But uh, uh, even uh, when uh, his uh, analysis was uh, uh, abstract, uh, he was always trying to emphasize processes uh, uh, for example, in in the strategy of economic development, his 1958 uh, book, he was trying to emphasize processes of decision making that could work in countries characterized by uh, weak administrative bodies, uh, a timid entrepreneurial class, uh, very limited infrastructures. Uh, and though his analysis was ab abstract, uh, he wanted to solve uh, specific problems uh, of uh, uh, investment in uh, uh, so-called less developed countries. Or take another book uh, um, uh, that might seem a, a typical uh, ivory tower intellectual book, uh, the, the Passions and the Interest. Uh, it is a history of ideas about uh, the concept of capitalism in, early modern, uh, in the early modern era, but it was rooted in, in the brutally practical problem of the link between economic growth and dictatorship. Hirschman in the 70s was witnessing a military coups in uh, several Latin American countries. So a history of ideas to make sense of uh, specific political developments uh, in, in the 70s. A period where um, much of what was going on in Latin America made headlines here in the States as well. Um, yes. Many uh, listeners uh, may not necessarily be familiar with uh, the name A.O. Hirschman. And, and as famous as I suppose, uh, and you haven't mentioned it yet, Exit, Voice and Loyalty, or for that matter, as, as you just did mention, uh, the passions and the interests may be. Can, can you share more of what, what it is about Hirschman? I mean, because it, it seems like there's some works for which he's known, and, and then there's others uh, for which he's less known. Uh, true. Uh, Hirschman uh, had a, a very long career and he went through uh, several different phases. 
today he's known and the big sellers uh, today are, uh, as you said, exit voice and loyalty, the passions and the interest, but also shifting involvements and uh, his uh, last uh, uh, monograph, The Rhetoric of Reaction. But in the past, um, and these uh, are, are books that belong, say, to the social sciences in, in general. Uh, they are, uh, uh, it's very difficult to pin uh, them specifically into one uh, disciplinary field. Uh, but in the past, uh, uh, he was known for, he was best known for his uh, work in, uh, in development economics, uh, for his book, The Strategy of Economic Development, published in 1958. Also, there are books that I think are very interesting and that uh, have remained less known. Uh, I, let, let me just mention one, uh, Development Projects Observed, uh, published originally in 1967, it is a book uh, uh, about the how projects uh, can succeed or fail. It is uh, rich of uh, uh, insightful analysis, but uh, it, it was forgotten basically immediately after its uh, publication. And yet it has remained a small classic, in my opinion. A new edition was published in 2015 with a foreword by Cassius Sunstein. Uh, so even less known uh, uh, work by Hirschman is uh, uh, often very, very interesting. I, I think a lot of people probably um, would be unfamiliar with that. And, and let's uh, let, let's come back to it for sure. Uh, I guess go, going more at this a little more uh, linearly um, in your first chapter, which you titled The Formation of an International Political Economist, uh, you note that Hirschman is now recognized as one of the most stimulating and creative social scientists of the 20th century. Uh, and the scholar we know and appreciate originated, as you wrote, an, an imponderable mix of chance, resilience, luck, the twists and turns of history, intuition and intelligence. Um, something he understood and a reason why history figures prominently in his system of thought. Your nicely crafted writing works well for Hirschman's incredible life. It seems there's a universality to it when one thinks of those who've influenced our own lives, I guess, and, and all the chance and luck and timing that seem to make all the difference. Uh, can you share a bit of what you were feeling and trying to convey when you when you wrote that part? Yes, well, Hirschman went through very difficult times uh, and uh, he fled the Nazi Germany was uh, active in, in the anti-fascist resistance in France and Italy. Uh, so he lived uh, um, in his own life uh, what would become one of the central uh, tenets of uh, his uh, scholarship, the unexpected consequences of uh, social action, the role of chance uh, in uh, human life. Uh, later, uh, in, in 19, 1980, I think, Hirschman uh, wrote a, a short, very nice piece uh, on uh, the might have beens uh, of history. This is a quote from him, the might have beens. And this, he wrote that it is important, for example, to study revolutions because they are the perfect example of, uh, you know, unexpected turns, how things have gone, how they could have gone, but uh, for uh, uh, specific historical contingencies, things didn't happen in a way, but in another way. And Hirschman experienced that in his own life. So he was very conscious of uh, uh, these, uh, and precisely because of these, uh, and because of the fact that 
he went through all uh, these difficulties and uh, unexpected uh, uh, events, uh, he also was very tenacious in creating opportunities for himself because he had uh, several cases to survive or, or, or uh, to recreate his uh, uh, um, conditions for uh, living, thriving. He, he fled, uh, he he had to to flee Germany and then France and then Italy and then he migrated to the United States and in all of these passages he had to rely on himself and he understood that things might have gone entirely in an entirely different way. Hirschman's formative readings included uh, people like Marx and Lenin uh, in his teenage years. He grew up as uh, as you point out in the book, in the Weimar Republic period uh, of German history. Can you tell us uh, some of how influential those early readings would become for Hirschman's um, social democratic politics and, and his later writing? For instance, one of the books you go into is Journeys Toward Progress. Yes, uh, it's, um, well, Hirschman was interested in uh, actual historical development even though he would uh, build rather general models to an, analyze uh, uh, certain uh, social dynamics, his interest was uh, uh, on actual specific idiosyncratic historical uh, uh, developments. He, for example, he, he liked, as you rightly pointed out, he, he read Marx, but he liked more uh, Marx the historian than Marx uh, the economist, because uh, Hirschman was less interested in searching for uh, the iron laws of history uh, and more in uh, possible and perhaps surprising possibilities in uh, uh, historical development. And this was also the basis of his uh, uh, reformist attitude. You, you mentioned Hirschman's social democratic politics, and he was a uh, a staunch reformist. He was no conservative, uh, of course, but he also was not a revolutionary because revolution uh, was a, a, an excessively simplistic path uh, to change for him. So uh, his reformist uh, approach meant trying to understand all the steps of uh, change, how change can actually happen, not just saying, okay, we, we make a revolution and overnight everything is going to change. That was uh, unrealistic to him. And this, uh, um, uh, reformist attitude, I think it's uh, uh, nicely encapsulated in a quote that I put at the very beginning of my book. Uh, it says, uh, reformers behave like the country or the chess player who exasperatingly fights on when objectively he has already lost and occasionally goes on to win. It's a, it's a fitting quote for the book on a, on a few levels. Uh, his study of political reform and, and policy evaluation and, and processes. Uh, uh, but before we get there, let me, let me step back here and, and uh, kind of position us back in chapter one. Uh, 1933, uh, the German elections found nearly 44% of the vote going to the Nazi party. And the nightmare officially begins with the ascension of Hitler. Uh, and the so-called Enabling Act. And as you point out, not long afterwards, Himmler has served notice that a concentration camp for political prisoners will open. Uh, the young Hirschman is 18 years old, and through his sister Ursula, 
he meets the Italian philosopher for whom he later dedicates his most influential book. Can you share some of the story uh, with us? Yes, it's a very interesting story. Actually, one could spend the whole uh, hour talking about uh, Hirschman's uh, uh, early life. Uh, in any case, uh, uh, very quickly, in Hirschman uh, uh, grew up uh, in uh, a Jewish assimilated family in Berlin, uh, a bourgeois family. Uh, he attended the uh, French gymnasium in, in Berlin and uh, uh, in a matter of months, Weimar Republic crumbled and uh, Hirschman decided he would uh, go on exile uh, to Paris. So one year he was a bourgeois scholar at the French gymnasium. Uh, the year after he was on a train fleeing uh, Germany uh, and starting his uh, life in exile. From Paris uh, in, in 1936, uh, he went for a few months uh, to Spain to fight uh, in, in uh, the international brigades to defend the uh, Spanish Republic against uh, uh, Francisco Franco. Uh, then he moved to Italy, where uh, his uh, brother-in-law, uh, Eugenio Colorni, lived with uh, Hirschman's sister, Ursula Hirschman. There also Hirschman participated in anti-fascist uh, activities uh, with his uh, older brother-in-law, Colorni. Uh, Colorni later would be sent to internal confinement uh, in the island of Ventotene, where he would be one of the authors of the Manifesto di Ventotene, the, the founding document of a, a European uh, Federation, together with Altiero Spinelli. And Hirschman participated in all those activities. Uh, he uh, then forced to flee Italy uh, as well, moved to France again, uh, and then spent a few months in Marseille in, an un in underground activities and fled uh, to the United States in 1940. And uh, Eugenio Colorni was a very formative uh, figure in uh, his uh, early years. He was uh, a few years older, a very intelligent and very sensitive person, entirely non-dogmatic, uh, and that was uh, enormously influential to the young Hirschman. After Hirschman uh, leaves Germany for France, another uh, key intellectual influence are his studies in Economic Geography, uh, which influenced an earlier book, uh, The Strategy of Economic Development, uh, that the economist and uh, New York Times columnist Paul Krugman denotes as marking um, the end of development economics. This is getting ahead of the story, I realize, uh, but seems relevant because lurking in the background of Hirschman's intellectual trajectory is a shift in economics to a more quantitative and model-driven analysis, or uh, what's been called uh, blackboard economics. Can you unpack some of this formative economics and geography influence on the young Hirschman, who later ends up in the Latin American country of Colombia? Yes, you are right that the, the, the roots of a, a long-term uh, attitude on the part of Hirschman uh, can be found in, uh, in his uh, Paris years. Uh, actually, the criticism uh, uh, by Krugman to, to Hirschman was based on, uh, as Krugman put it, on, on Hirschman's uh, supposed inability to express uh, his ideas in tight uh, mathematical models. And this is why Krugman uh, said that uh, Actually, the strategy of economic development published in 1958 
uh, marked, according to Krugman, the end of development economics because uh, the discipline was shifting towards uh, more quantitative uh, and, as you said, model-driven analysis, and Hirschman was uh, still using words instead of mathematics. But actually, Hirschman liked to build models. His early works were uh, statistically statistical works, uh, often mathematically pretty sophisticated. But the point is that in his analysis, uh, he increasingly highlighted that uncertainty was crucial. It, it was crucial to factor in uncertainty in order to understand the historical processes. And probabilistic calculation was often uh, simply misleading. So Hirschman tried to introduce a radical uncertainty. I mean, an uncertainty that we cannot quantify. We, we must just accept that there are things we don't know. But he, he often failed to convince uh, other uh, economists uh, in following him uh, on these. So I think that uh, Krugman actually didn't explain the end of development economics. Uh, uh, he uh, noticed a difference uh, in, uh, in the perspective of Hirschman and uh, others on how to do uh, economic analysis. And by the way, radical uncertainty is now becoming, again, a fashionable concept. If you think about uh, the book by Mervyn King and John Kay on radical uncertainty. So again, Hirschman was uh, discussing this uh, several decades uh, ago already. Well, you cover a, a lot of ground in these formative years for Hirschman. And another point of interest, as you just pointed out, was that he, he did have a, a quantitative focus early on in fact, he he did a lot of statistical work on nuptiality and fertility issues, which sparked an attack then in the Italian press. By this time, his mentor uh, and uh, friend, Corlorni, had, had been arrested by Italian authorities. Can you unpack how his work on demographic trends and population statistics sets in motion the next phase of his life and how, how that worked out for him? Yes, Hirschman uh, worked on, on nuptiality and fertility issues when he was at the University of Trieste in uh, uh, the second half of the 30s. And uh, in an article, he demonstrated that, that there were decreasing returns of survival rates in relation to the number of births per woman in Italy. So say if a woman had uh, five children, four on average would survive. If a woman had seven children, three on average uh, would survive. So there were decreasing returns uh, to uh, the number of birds. And this, of course, uh, ran uh, against uh, uh, the policies uh, of the fascist regime, uh, the demographic policies of maximizing fertility. There are pictures, uh, you may have seen them, uh, you know, of families with uh, a dozen children or making the Roman salute. That was uh, uh, the best possible family for uh, the fascist regime. And Hirschman demonstrated that, uh, that those were the exception. Actually, uh, maximizing uh, fertility was not uh, uh, conducive to the results that uh, the regime uh, was uh, highlighting. Well, I don't want to leave uh, this chapter uh, without allowing you to introduce two prominent figures and formative episodes in, in the life of Hirschman, uh, who's now in his mid-20s uh, and has become literate in, in multiple languages. Um, first, 
the New, New Zealand economist John uh, B. Condliffe in the Bergen Conference, you mentioned the then topical issue of bilateralism and Hirschman's contribution to Condliffe's uh, edited volume on world trade, which links to Hirschman's first book. Second, uh, as if that's not enough, is Hirschman's association with Barry and Fry uh, and their efforts to help artists and intellectuals escape global fascist uh, and anti-Semitic uh, elements, as you point out, uh, the rescue operation. And it's also uh, the closing part of the chapter. Can you share some of the highlights uh, for listeners in terms of that era for him? Yes, uh, the rescue operation uh, with Parian Fry uh, was uh, the last episode in Hirschman's life before uh, he migrated uh, to the United States in 1940. Varian Fry organized this rescue operation to help uh, intellectuals and artists uh, escape uh, occupied France. And Hirschman was Varian uh, uh, Fry's closest collaborator. Basically, they, they had a legal side of the operation that consisted in uh, uh, offering uh, money or uh, food uh, to families in distress. And then there was the covert operation, and Hirschman was in charge of that, uh, that consisted in finding uh, routes across the Pyrenees from, from France to Spain to help these people leave France, reach uh, Portugal, Lisbon, and from there take uh, a ship towards North America or South America. They helped people such as Marc Chagall, Arthur Kostler, Marcel Duchamp, Anna Arendt, and Hirschman was uh, very much at the center of that operation. The other person you mentioned, John B. Condliffe, was uh, an economist collaborating with the League of Nations, uh, and Condliffe uh, gave Hirschman his first job that was to prepare a report on bilateralism uh, for a conference of the League of Nations. And then uh, even more importantly, uh, Condliffe provided Hirschman with a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation that uh, was crucial for his entry into the US. Without that grant, uh, Hirschman would have had serious difficulties in uh, uh, being admitted to the US. And he recognized that uh, help on the professional and personal level in a later letter to Condliffe, uh, in which he wrote something like, I don't remember who said that, that it is uh, more important to save uh, our dreams uh, than to save uh, our lives. Uh, you know, you have nearly saved uh, both for me because uh, he dreamt of uh, becoming a scholar, an economist, uh, and of course, uh, he wanted to save his own life. And Condliffe uh, was uh, enormously supportive on both sides. Wow. So that was uh, a, another formative uh, influence. Your second chapter, uh, The Politics of Power, that's your title there. Uh, Hirschman reconnects with Condliffe and the intellectual community within the University of California, Berkeley. And as you put it, uh, Hirschman joined a very interesting cohort of scholars as he prepared his 1945 publication, National Power in the Structure of Foreign Trade. He was part of a lively debate, and part of the, the, the debate there was on the crisis of the interwar period. Can you share some of your writing there and the Condolith connection to that first monograph, including your shared interest in the importance of, as you note, overcoming national sovereignty? 
Yes, well, the crisis of the interwar period was, uh, uh, of course, at the center of uh, the analysis of uh, several scholars. Uh, and Condliffe, uh, like many others, uh, reflected about the possibility of uh, overcoming national sovereignty because uh, it was uh, the they saw in uh, Nazism and fascism the result of uh, exasperated nationalism. And so in, in order to secure peace, uh, their idea was uh, to overcome national uh, power politics. Uh, and Hirschman was very much in, in this uh, uh, tradition and his book, National Power and the Structure of Foreign Trade, uh, uh, was a very uh, sophisticated analysis uh, of the unbalanced trade relations between a powerful country, and this, of course, in Hirschman's analysis was Nazi Germany, and uh, with neighboring countries. Uh, in Hirschman's uh, analysis, uh, uh, they were Eastern European countries. Uh, Hirschman's book is very interesting in, in the analysis of these uh, relations. Uh, and then uh, at the end of the book, he proposes to uh, overcome uh, the problems of these unbalanced trade relations uh, with the supranational government that would keep nationalistic uh, uh, economic imperialism at bay. But that was uh, uh, simply an impractical solution. As Hirschman later uh, admitted, a deus ex machina, because he didn't explain how this uh, supranational government uh, could be put into place in the first instance. So the book was uh, less interesting for the solution than for uh, the analysis of uh, unbalanced uh, relations between Nazi Germany and uh, other European countries. Hirschman wrote that book in 1942 and published it in 1945. Much later, uh, Charles Kindleberger wrote a famous book about the uh, interwar crisis uh, in which uh, he put forth uh, uh, his analysis according to which the crisis was due to the fact that the hegemonic power was missing. So it's interesting. I'm mentioning Kindleberger because he was mm. giving a, an answer to uh, Hirschman's problem about the interwar crisis. And instead of the uh, supranational government, Kindleberger more uh, realistically proposed that uh, it was not necessarily uh, a question of having a supranational government, but uh, of having a hegemonic power that would be able to govern the uh, international system. The reception, though, of, of national power and the structure of foreign trade that uh, you argue uh, became a recurring theme for criticisms of future works. Uh, but there was a method uh, to his approach and, and hence the influence of his work. Can you share some of uh, your interesting analysis with us on this and how the book really experienced two different waves of notoriety? Yes, actually, Hirschman's uh, um, conclusion in National Power and the Structure of Foreign Trade that uh, a supranational government uh, was uh, uh, needed is actually not particularly important uh, in, in the economy of the entire book. And Hirschman uh, uh, later backed from this uh, conclusion, but uh, he still liked the book because the book is, uh, is actually very, very interesting. And he recognized the novelty of his uh, early analysis. For example, he focused on uh, processes of cumulative patterns as opposed to 
self-equilibrating patterns of uh, international trade relations. And that was uh, a very dynamic analysis and very interesting. Also, I already mentioned his uh, interest uh, in specific and idiosyncratic historical processes, and that is uh, uh, a perspective that uh, is important to the development of his uh, analysis in the book. Uh, and these are all aspects of the book that make it still relevant today. After its publication, however, the world was changing quickly because it was published in 1945, and of course, no supranational government was to be seen. The hegemonic power was actually emerging, the United States. So uh, the Kindleberger's uh, version uh, was uh, uh, taking shape. But Hirschman's book uh, reappeared on the scene in the early 60s uh, because of a novel interest in Hirschman's statistical work that he, he produced in, in the book. So in the statistical analysis of Hirschman, uh, remained important. And then a second wave of interest in the book uh, took place uh, later in the 70s uh, because it was recognized as a foundational uh, uh, work in the new field of international political economy. And in the new attention that uh, uh, IPE scholars gave to structural imbalances in international economic relations, were rooted in Hirschman's uh, analysis uh, of uh, the unbalanced relations between uh, Nazi Germany and Eastern European countries that he put forth in his 1945 book. So that became uh, a foundational uh, text for uh, IP scholars. And, you know, uh, Robert Gilpin had written a book in, I think it was 2000 or 2001, called uh, uh, Global Political Economy. Yes. Um, he, he gave... Hirschman had some do there. There's much more there for readers, obviously, in your book uh, to uncover and savor. Your next uh, chapter, the third chapter, Pioneer of Development, starts in earnest with Hirschman's Columbia assignment. He spent four years there with his family. Uh, can you set the context for listeners about these formative years in terms of his outlook on development economics uh, and the policymaking process? Uh, Columbia was also uh, the World Bank's first uh, general survey mission, the, the leader of which was Lachlan Curry, uh, the former economic advisor to FDR, as you pointed out. How's the survey and Curry pivotal to understanding the significance of this intellectual period in Hirschman's life and the clash of uh, policymaking visions? More importantly, um, your point about the Colombian experience reinforcing his view on the nature of the policymaking process. Can you share its significance as well? Yes, well, the Colombian period uh, created the basis uh, uh, for Hirschman for his uh, subsequent notoriety in, uh, in, in the development uh, field. He publishes the strategy of economic development in 1958 based on the Colombia experience. And you mentioned the Curry mission to Colombia, the first World Bank mission to comprehensive uh, mission to less developed country. And the Curry mission published a huge volume of uh, several hundred pages uh, proposing a comprehensive plan for development uh, in Colombia. 
And Hirschman, who was uh, a, an economic advisor to the Colombian government, reacted against uh, the approach of the Cari mission because, according to Hirschman, a less developed country could not be equipped to design and to manage a comprehensive plan in the first instance. Otherwise, it would not be less developed. It would not be underdeveloped, as they said in, in those years. And Hirschman reacted also against uh, the concept that was very fashionable of uh, obstacles to development. So less developed countries uh, are characterized by a lack of capital or lack of in infrastructures, uh, and these uh, missing elements are obstacles to development. Uh, according to Hirschman, actually resources actually exist, though they are perhaps uh, uh, hidden or badly utilized, but they can be summoned. And so how can we summon them? This is where Hirschman proposed a, a, a different concept of what was the missing element in less developed countries, that is the ability to take decisions. So how you summon resources when these countries often lack the ability to take decisions because uh, say the government is not particularly strong or efficient or uh, the entrepreneurial class is uh, weak. How can you trigger a process of development uh, despite the initial conditions uh, of, uh, of a country? And his uh, answer to this uh, was uh, to try to uncover what he called inducive mechanisms that could promote investment despite the fact that uh, investment decisions uh, might not be particularly efficient. So he liked metaphors uh, such as putting the cart before the, the, the horse or, uh, as I said, inducive mechanisms or what would become the most fashionable uh, term in his analysis, linkages. The links between uh, different uh, investment decisions that uh, trigger a process uh, of economic development. I'll, I'll give you one example just to um, sure. to be uh, less abstract than than have been. Usually, the idea was that first uh, you build the infrastructure so that uh, uh, specific uh, uh, investment decisions uh, can find uh, the right environment. Say first you build a road. Uh, so that uh, in the, ne the next step, when you will build uh, the manufacturing plant, you will have the road to bring the products uh, from the manufacturing plants uh, to, say, the port uh, from which you are going to export them. And Hirschman said it's not necessarily so. You can put the cart before the horse if you first uh, use your resources uh, to establish uh, a new manufacturing plant. And then because you have the plant there, there will be an inducive mechanism. You will be forced to build the road to connect the plant to the port. And more importantly, you will know with a very degree of, uh, with a strong degree of precision that you need the road to that, from that specific plant to that specific port instead of, you know, just building infrastructures around the country just because you want to be prepared to the next phase of industrialization. So he was trying to find mechanisms that uh, would prompt processes of uh, uh, economic change without necessarily the abilities to plan them in advance. Mm, nice. So like an early applied economics. There's a lot uh, going on there. Hirschman covered so much 
whether you want to talk about inducement mechanisms or, uh, as you say, linkages, there really was an applied emphasis there that uh, anybody interested in policy uh, in terms of its ground level application should have an interest in Hirschman and, and likewise uh, in your analysis of uh, Hirschman's work. Uh, your fourth chapter, which you entitle uh, Remaking uh, Development Economics, lays some fascinating groundwork uh, with many connections, not least of which uh, was your highlighting of the tension uh, between the particular and the general uh, with regard to the state of knowledge about development, a little bit about what we've been on about, but especially in relation to how those on the ground and those in academia saw things. As you pointed out, 20 years of foreign aid was not positively conclusive. Uh, in fact, many people may, uh, some of the older uh, listeners may, may remember articles to that effect. Development economics was considered wanting as an effective analytical tool and a basis for aid policies. Um, that point, though, is subsumed under your broader analysis as reflected early in the chapter in your subtitle. There was the historical turn, journeys toward progress. Hey, can you unpack some of the key issues here and the importance of Hirschman's 1963 journeys toward progress and his 1967 development projects observed? That's a very interesting period in, in the history of development economics and also in the history of Hirschman's scholarship. Uh, because as you said, there was a feeling of crisis uh, in the development field and uh, grand theories of the uh, early days uh, had not produced a clear, uh, successful record in less developed countries. And Hirschman had participated to that early debate with his 1958 book, The Strategy of Economic Development. So in the in the 60s, uh, he said uh, there is a very short uh, piece in which he wrote, uh, OK, what if the fortress of underdevelopment uh, is uh, so formidable that it cannot be uh, conquered by frontal attack? So, you know, with the be comprehensive plan or, for that matter, Hirschman's uh, strategy of linkages. Hirschman also was reacting uh, to the uh, growing support for revolution, in, in, uh, especially in Latin America, as a way to break uh, the underdevelopment of weak bourgeois societies. And uh, he said more uncanny tactics uh, uh, should be used then uh, to find mechanisms that foster uh, uh, development processes, processes of economic growth uh, and uh, processes of uh, growth of the living standard of the population. And his conclusion was uh, that the only way to find this mechanism was to study in detail past processes uh, of uh, uh, social and economic change. And so in his book, uh, Journeys Toward Progress, he wrote at the very beginning of the book, uh, the core of the book is in the three stories that he developed in, uh, three, subsequent, in, in three different chapters, one about uh, the problem of draft in Northeast Brazil, one about the problem of inflation in Chile, and the third one, uh, about uh, land reform in Colombia. And he follows the development of these uh, problems uh, throughout the century in, in uh, 
uh, in each country. And in development projects observed, he does the same. In this case, uh, the focus is not about the process of uh, policy making in three different countries, but uh, is about uh, the process of uh, drawing and then uh, implementing a specific development project uh, in, uh, in less developed countries. So he tried to understand from specific historical uh, analysis uh, what could be found out uh, in order to prompt development processes. So generalizations, in a sense, were only possible to Hirschman starting from specific detailed historical analysis. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. One of the interests, I think, with Hirschman and that all of us find uh, with regard to his writing and analysis is his ability to, to put those things together and to, to make use of history to do something practical with it in terms of changing the things on the ground. And so you've talked a bit about Lachlan Curry uh, and the disagreement uh, about development approaches a bit, but, but this extends further in terms of the World Bank and how they received Hirschman's interim observations, which we haven't talked about. But more significantly, you mentioned, you already mentioned inducement mechanisms, but but how does this later uh, become the starting point for his famous uh, 1970 publication, Exit, Voice and Loyalty? Can you uh, connect a few of the dots here for us? Yes, yes, this is a very, very interesting uh, connection between uh, uh, different publications. Uh, first, I would like to say a couple of words about uh, this concept of the counterfactual. And you are correct that I don't use it uh, in my book. Uh, I would rather uh, highlight the importance uh, of uncertainty for Hirschman and his uh, sensitivity to that. Because to me, counterfactual still retains uh, even if in the negative, uh, but retains uh, some sense of uh, determinism. Things uh, have gone one way, but what if... Uh, Hirschman is uh, even more open than uh, just the what if. It uh, really tries to, to make sense uh, of uh, deep uncertainty in, in historical processes. But now coming to uh, mm -hmm. Exit Voice and Loyalty, it is typical of uh, Hirschman's... Uh, to develop new questions from past research. So exit voice and loyalty, which is uh, an enormously uh, innovative uh, and important uh, book, originated from uh, a specific case study that Hirschman uh, discussed in development projects observed three years uh, earlier, uh, a case study on rail transportation in Nigeria. But that specific case study originated, started a train of thoughts in Hirschman's mind that produced an entirely new book, very innovative. Mm -hmm. The specific uh, novelty of exit poison loyalty resides in the attempt to combine elements typical of uh, political and economic analysis. So uh, Hirschman said that uh, exit is uh, uh, the 
typical behavior of uh, the economic reality. When we say we vote with our feet or uh, in the market, we stop buying from a producer and we start buying from another producer. With that, we signal our uh, shifting preferences or the fact that, uh, say, a product is no longer uh, interesting to us and we prefer something else. And this is the way that information uh, circulates. Voice is the quintessential political behavior. We voice our opinions, we discuss, uh, and exit and voice, of course, have different characteristics if we try to model, uh, model them a little bit. Exit is uh, discrete. We either exit or we don't exit. Uh, and uh, it is uh, very clear also in its uh, message, but also very simple because you exit or don't exit voice can be can have a different very several different volumes it can be a very uh, grumbling voice or it can be a very loud voice and all the possible mm. volumes in between and uh, how these two different behaviors uh, interact how can we explain market mechanisms uh, also considering voice uh, or political mechanisms uh, taking into consideration, uh, say, the exit uh, or non-exit behavior. And exit voice and loyalty is difficult to be summarized, so I'm not going to do that, but it is a wonderful exploration of uh, this uh, intermodulation uh, between uh, these concepts. With loyalty, which is uh, perhaps the least developed concept uh, in between. That chapter also introduces the idea of creativity, but also uh, project side effects. Uh, can you share some of your writing there and how uh, this school of cost-benefit analysis emerges? Can you share some of the critiques, uh, but also the larger context, as you, as you put it, that were feedback mechanisms that are a soft spot in, in most organizations? Yeah, well, uh, Hirschman wrote uh, development projects observed uh, in 1967 when, as you mentioned, cost-benefit analysis was on the rise. And cost-benefit analysis was a way to quantify the costs and the benefits of specific uh, projects and therefore come to a conclusion about whether it would be wise to implement the project or not, of course, depending on whether the cost would uh, uh, be uh, higher than the benefits or vice versa. And Hirschman considered this a, a conflation of the concepts of risk and uncertainty, where risk uh, is uh, can be calculated uh, with a probabilistic analysis, and uncertainty simply means that we cannot know. Actually, there is a, a, a quote that I always have at hand because uh, I, I really like it a lot. So at the end of development project observed, uh, and I'm quoting now, upon inspection, each project turns out to represent a unique constellation of experiences and consequences of direct and indirect effects. This uniqueness, in turn, results from the varied interplay between the structural characteristics of projects on the one hand and the social and political environment on the other. And then Hirschman continues, was no intention to erect these manifold aspects of project behavior into full-fledged criteria that should be applied to all projects. Rather, I was seeking to provide project planners and operators 
with a large set of glasses with which to discern probable lines of project behavior in the expectation that the analysis of each individual project would require different and rather limited subsets of the full set of classes which has been exhibited. So you, um, mm. end quote. So you see that uh, the specific also choice of words, a unique constellation, lines of project behavior, uh, uh, how individual project uh, required different uh, uh, set of glasses. Hirschman was trying to uh, draw some uh, meaningful conclusions from uh, a word that he considered very complex uh, and uh, characterized by uh, radical uncertainty. On the other side, supporters of cost-benefit analysis uh, in, were not uh, you know, the simplistic guys because Amartya Sen, mm. Stephen Marklin, uh, who are uh, uh, very accomplished and sophisticated uh, uh, scholars were developing cost-benefit analysis and they were trying to address uh, a real need on the part of international organizations that uh, needed ways to assess uh, development projects. Then, uh, as you said, feedback mechanisms uh, uh, on the part of the bank uh, are a soft spot uh, on the part of the World Bank because uh, the bank found it uh, uh, almost a provocation that uh, Hirschman uh, highlighted the uh, overwhelming uh, presence uh, of uncertainty in uh, project assessment because uh, then the bank uh, still would need uh, some way to cope uh, with this uncertainty. So. It's true that Hirschman's proposal was very stimulating, but also practical. And uh, banks economists were overreacting against uh, Hirschman's uh, uh, approach. At the same time, they had a real need to, to find ways of assessing development projects. Your fifth chapter uh, in interdisciplinary social science, which you dedicate to Hirschman's complex a uh, transitional period. Um, you mentioned it, it includes his research articles in the late 1960s on development issues on the one hand, all the way to exit voice and loyalty in 1970 on the other. You mark this as a crucial uh, juncture on a few levels uh, from breaking down disciplinary barriers to his concept of possibilism. Also, his use of naive utopianism as a part of the Hirschman Bird paper of uh, late 1967, which was the focus of a study group on foreign aid. Can you unpack some of this interesting chapter as lead-in uh, to his year at Stanford in 1968-69 and his preparation of exit voice and loyalty? Yes, thanks for this, because uh, this is... Uh, uh a major turn in uh, Hirschman's uh, career. Exit Voice and Loyalty is uh, um, a book that made uh, Hirschman famous uh, beyond the borders uh, of the development discipline. And that made uh, Hirschman uh, more than an economist, but uh, an all-round social scientist. It was difficult to, to write this chapter precisely because uh, uh, this uh, transition uh, was pretty quick uh, and uh, 
old interests, such as uh, those uh, in, in development issues, overlapped with an entirely new research agenda that uh, was emerging uh, with exit voice and loyalty. But I think there is actually a, a juncture piece that can help uh, understand uh, the transition, and this is uh, his. Uh, introduction to a collection of paper. Uh, the collection is entitled uh, Bias for Hope, and the introduction mm. is about uh, uh, Hirschman's concept of possibilism. And we have already discussed his interest in uh, specific historical developments, and in, in that piece, uh, Hirschman highlights uh, for the first time in this very clear and uh, open way his uh, specific perspective on uh, uh, social inquiry, because he says uh, often uh, we social scientists uh, look for regularities uh, in uh, social dynamics. We try to understand uh, these regularities in order to apply uh, our analysis uh, to, to different periods or to different uh, uh, regions. Uh, or We try to build a comparative analysis. Uh, and of course, this is all very interesting. Uh, and yet, Hirschman uh, adds, it has been uh, his own uh, uh, propensity to look for uh, what is uh, perhaps uh, improbable, but still possible than just for uh, what is more probable for the regularities. And I earlier in our conversation, I connected this uh, to uh, this methodological approach to his uh, uh, reformist uh, political uh, bent. Looking for the possible makes it. Uh, uh, allows one to explore uh, a variety of uh, processes that bring us to what we hope uh, can be social change. And uh, it is in this uh, framework that Hirschman also spoke ab uh, about his naive uh, utopianism. He was in that case uh, discussing reforms uh, in the institutional architecture of development policies. Uh, uh, and foreign aid policies. And uh, Hirschman uh, wrote a paper, co-authored the paper uh, with Richard Bird that was uh, criticized as uh, totally naive, uh, out of contact with the development field, etc. And Hirschman recognized that and said, yes, but uh, if we do that, uh, we keep the door open to possible developments in the future when perhaps uh, the architecture becomes less rigid than it was when perhaps possibilities for reform that were not open earlier become possible. And then our naive utopianism can become of, of some usefulness because we have uh, produced certain ideas that can uh, be implemented uh, totally or in part, uh, or that can be used to make new proposals for uh, organizational reforms in the development field. So again, he, he was not only interested in studying possibilities, but in creating possibilities. His naive utopianism was a way to create a discourse, a conversation that, uh, that would make possible social and uh, institutional reform in the future. Although the book was not uh, without its critics, uh, uh, and again, talking about uh, exit voice and loyalty, the, the uh, conceptual framework caught on and was broadly applied in the in the field, as you've noted. By 1973, and uh, the International Political Science Association uh, was holding a seminar 
on exit voice and loyalty. Uh, can you share some of the larger background in terms of researchers in the field and how some, uh, like Guillermo O'Donnell, the Argentinian uh, sociologist, adapted it? For that matter, and how, as you wrote, uh, Hirschman himself returns to the idea or the concept of exit voice in 1989 with the fall of the Berlin Wall. Sorry, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. I, I realize um, this book uh, was a game changer, right, on a, on a number of levels. Well, yes, it was, uh, and uh, uh, you're right that uh, in a few years after the, the publication, Exit Voice and Loyalty uh, became uh, part of the language of the social sciences. So uh, I document in the book almost an infinite number of scholars. Uh, uh, readapted uh, uh, or reframed their analysis in terms of exit and voice and loyalty and how this uh, triad uh, could be used to interpret uh, a number of uh, uh, different cases. Guillermo O'Donnell was one of the uh, most interesting uh, uh, in uh, adopting this uh, framework and actually elaborating on that because uh, he started to discuss uh, different types of voice uh, in uh, Latin American dictatorships and the how the vertical voice between uh, the people uh, and the government works and how horizontal voice among people can or cannot work uh, uh, in a dictatorship or how exit used, uh, let's say, how forced exit when the government forces into exile political opponents was used to silence voice at home. So O'Donnell was uh, enormously interesting in, uh, in his use of uh, exit and voice uh, in his analysis. And uh, you mentioned Hirschman's return to exit and voice in 1989, and that again was uh, a very interesting analysis uh, because uh, in, in the first, uh, in the original presentation of exit and voice, Hirschman discuss them as uh, very different and in some way opposing concepts. If uh, uh, a, a dynamic is informed by exit, voice has no much place there and vice versa. And then uh, trying to analyze uh, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall uh, and the collapse uh, of the Eastern European communist regimes, Ishman said, okay, but this uh, started as uh, a, a movement of individuals who wanted to move uh, to the West. And they took that decision at the personal level, at the individual level. So it was uh, a clearly a, a, something that could be analyzed as exit from communist regimes to uh, Western Europe, exit at the individual level. But then there were so many and they started to find that they were not alone converging towards crossing points at the border or at train stations, that a voice emerged from this movement that was a mass movement in a sense. So it was not no longer something that could be interpreted as individual exit, but something that a process that from out of exit produced a collective voice against the communist regime. So in that case, exit and voice complemented each other in a novel way that Hirschman had not uh, imagined in, uh, in his 1970 book, in Exit, Voice and Loyalty. 
And this is an interesting the case of what Hirschman would call uh, his uh, propensity for self-subversion, because he was uh, subverting his original analysis uh, and bringing into uh, it uh, a novel perspective. No doubt you could say more, uh, but let's turn now uh, to his 1977 publication of the passions and the interests, which is central uh, to your sixth chapter, the history and theory of market societies. Can you tell us about the, the lead up though, uh, the crisis of democratic governments in Latin America being overthrown and how Hirschman began examining the relationship between economic growth and political developments. It's another engaging chapter in which you explain so much, including Hirschman's tunnel effect and how it partly led to his withdrawal into the history of ideas from which his passions and the interests emerges. What's the story behind his interest in uh, do commerce? Uh, well, in the 70s, uh, uh, Hirschman uh, was witnessing the collapse of uh, several democracies uh, in Latin America, a continent that he knew well and that was dear to him. And, uh, and then a question uh, emerged. Uh, I mean, he, he started to ask, uh, how is it possible that uh, we, we spent 20 years, uh, 30 years uh, promoting the economic development of less developed countries? And then the result is that we see economic development and not only the collapse of democracy, but uh, annihilation of human rights, uh, the killing of political opponents. So that was a, a political human uh, and human catastrophe. And, and therefore, Hirschman started to explore the connection between economic development, uh, he summarized in the concept of uh, uh, trade and capitalist development in the modern era, and uh, and peaceful uh, political uh, relations uh, within and between countries and and he explored this idea that uh, uh, was uh, common among political philosophers in the modern era that trade uh, was beneficial to peace montesquieu uh, wrote where there is uh, commerce uh, there is peace where there is peace uh, uh, there is also commerce because, uh, of course, uh, war is disruptive to commerce. Uh, uh, war uh, doesn't create the conditions for safety necessary uh, to commerce, uh, to trade uh, in a country or between countries. But uh, Irshman also unveiled uh, another uh, tradition that considered uh, markets uh, not simply as the basis uh, of uh, commerce, but also markets as something that is very delicate uh, and that cannot be disrupted. Uh, markets as a delicate mechanism, the metaphor was a delicate watch whose uh, mechanism cannot be disrupted in order for the markets to work properly. And that uh, had uh, a sort of a um, dictatorial uh, a concept embedded in it, because if a market is uh, such a delicate mechanism, then uh, political control over society can be justified in order to avoid any possible disruption. So Hirschman, in this book, uh, explored these different perspectives on uh, economic growth and how it relates uh, to 
political developments and personal and political liberty. And this was his way to try to make sense of what was happening in several Latin American countries. Also in that period, he studied how economic inequality affects political processes. The tunnel effect is based on a pretty simple but catchy example that Hirschman proposed. Imagine that you are in a line, in a car, in a tunnel, and you are stuck in the traffic. And then you see the next line moving ahead. Initially, you are happy because you think that your line is going to move soon since things are... Uh, less stuck than they were before. And so growing inequality out of metaphor uh, can be initially uh, re related to an optimistic uh, response on the part of the people. Okay, inequality is increasing, the other line is moving, I'm, stu I'm still stuck, but I'm optimistic that I'm going to move ahead uh, soon. But then if you keep on seeing the other line moving on and you remain stuck at your place, anger can ensue. And this is, uh, according to Ishman, what happens in many developing countries where um, economic growth produces increasing inequality. Initially, this is not a problem because uh, a feeling of optimism permeates the entire society, but uh, continuing inequality can become very disruptive and the ground for discontent and perhaps political turmoil. And so out of this analysis, Hirschman tried to explain the very high volatility of political processes in periods of economic growth. And I'm sorry for this very long answer, but I would like to add one point here because mm -hmm. uh, these examples are quintessential examples of how Hirschman's analysis of economic dynamics is prompted by his uh, deeply political interest in the working of democracy. So one point of my book uh, is that Hirschman, uh, the economist, Hirschman, the social scientist, uh, has uh, as a unifying uh, theme throughout his uh, scholarly career, the problem of democracy. And even in, in his uh, strictly economic analysis, the starting point is the political question of democracy, how it can thrive, how it can fail. Hey, we're still talking about uh, the future of a democracy, which is interesting. I think you will see that as a, as a theme these days. Thanks again for your um, explication of the tunnel effect. As simple as it sounds, I think it's interesting that Hirschman is able to use that and uh, basically link that to uh, the inequality situation. So there, there's much of interest for listeners, obviously, in all your chapters uh, with regard to Hirschman, but especially those who are keen on intellectual history. Uh, Richard Whatmore had written, and I quote, the intellectual historian has to start with the words. You point out right. uh, in how Hirschman's analysis and, and I quote, uh, mirrored in the history of ideas, the shift from mercantilism to free market capitalism, end of quote, in global economic history. Can you share your understanding of this book and its context 
because you mentioned JGA Pocock and Quentin Skinner before you move on to connect uh, Ernst Gellner uh, with O'Donnell and the bureaucratic authoritarian turn, which seems so relevant today. Yes, well, thanks for uh, this question, because you also show the uh, uh, myriads of connections of Hirschman's analysis to other very interesting scholars. So I mentioned Pocock and Skinner with reference uh, to uh, Hirschman's style of analysis, especially in the passions and the uh, interests, and uh, with reference to his attention to the semantic transformations of these concepts of passions and uh, interest. Uh, also, there is uh, a, a parallel between uh, Hirschman and Pocock and Skinner in uh, his uh, uh, somewhat endogenous uh, approach, uh, by which I mean he discussed each new argument uh, in his analysis as a response to or uh, a qualification of a previous argument. And, and, and then you, you mentioned Gellner and O'Donnell, well, they are examples of uh, the success of these uh, uh, categories. Now, the passions are uh, unpredictable, irrational, whereas interests are uh, predictable, regular, rational. And uh, some scholars pointed out that uh, experts and technocrats in the modern, uh, in the contemporary world uh, are uh, new bearers of the concept of interest uh, against the irrational passions of uh, anti-democratic temptations. And actually, Gellner and, and, and O'Donnell discussed this approach uh, and claimed that instead, modern authoritarianism is bureaucratic, is not the field of passions. Uh, Gellner said, I can't really think that uh, Soviet bureaucrats uh, are uh, good uh, characters for, say, they, they possess it or uh, some other Dostoevsky's uh, novel. So again, this is, uh, we, we discussed earlier Exit Voice and Loyalty, how it became uh, a, a triad widely utilized uh, in the social sciences and the passions and the interest uh, was also very influential. And it is, uh, it is very stimulating to read it uh, with the background of uh, other scholars such as Pocock, uh, Skinner, Gellner and O'Donnell. You, you then, take readers to your seventh chapter, which is another key part of the Hirschman story uh, that you titled The Working of Democracy. And you cover three more books, starting with his 1982 shifting involvements, private interest and public action. Well, was it a self-described phenomenology of disappointments and involvements or the long wave of a private public cycle that we should focus on here? And how was the analysis received? Yes, this uh, chapter is uh, very uh, important in my analysis precisely because it focuses on uh, Hirschman's uh, direct engagement with the working of democracy. And in shifting involvement is an attempt, as you said, to uh, describe a, a sort of a cycle between private and public uh, uh, engagement. Also, it is a, a polemics against the concept of the free rider, because Hirschman said, how is it possible to, uh, if we think in, if we believe in the rationality of political actors uh, behaving like free riders, how can we explain the stronger uh, and widespread popular engagement in uh, 
public uh, activities, public protests uh, that uh, cyclically take place. Actually, I think that uh, Hirschman simplified uh, excessively the concept of the free rider and his criticism of Olson is not always uh, well developed. But uh, as always in Hirschman, uh, there are uh, very interesting elements in his analysis. For example, he points out that Often, the uh, rationality of actors or the interest of actors must be understood not in terms of the final result that they are aiming at, but uh, as the process through, through which they aim at the final result. So Hirschman develops the concept of striving, and uh, he says uh, often in uh, public engagement, it is the very action of participating that is uh, the source of uh, uh, self-satisfaction, not necessarily reaching the final goal, though that, of course, is important, but participating to the public uh, uh, or collective effort. This said, I also think that uh, that book has uh, some important limits because I don't think it is uh, actually able to explain the cycle, why and how individuals become uh, part of historical processes, which is, uh, in the end, the question of the historian. This book uh, is perhaps excessively endogenous because it explains uh, the cycle uh, in terms of its internal dynamics, the cycle between uh, private and public uh, moments, but often public engagement is the result of exogenous causes. See, for example, the reaction to wars, uh, the war in Vietnam. Sure. No, I think that was um, that, that that was part and parcel with his colleagues at the Institute for Advanced Studies, um, Michael Walzer and um, Gertz. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that was uh, there, especially with Walzer. I find it interesting from shifting involvement, which is 1982, and then you move to his 1984 book, Getting Ahead Collectively, Grassroots Experiences, in Latin America, where he introduces uh, things like inverted sequences and other applications of linkages, which you've uh, brought up. And the fourth chapter is a previously published article, The Principle of Conservation and Mutation of Social Energy. Um, you've noted that the democracy theme runs through his work. Can you share the significance of this uh, particular book as filling a gap in the literature and, more importantly, his possibilist attitude? Yeah, thank you. I, I, I'm glad that you asked about this uh, book. This is a, a minor book in uh, Hirschman's uh, production, in Hirschman's uh, uh, roster of publications, but it is uh, a very nice uh, uh, report about the relationship between grassroots activism and the strengthening of democratic processes in a number of Latin American countries. It is uh, full of interesting insights uh, about that, and Hirschman uh, shows uh, a very refreshful uh, optimism about the strengthening of democracies uh, in Latin America. He, his principle of conservation and mutation of social energy has to do with the fact that uh, he noticed that uh, many individuals involved in uh, uh, grassroots uh, activism uh, in one phase uh, of their life uh, uh, would then uh, bring that 
the energy that they had shown in grassroots activism into other activities uh, that involved uh, communities, uh, perhaps uh, in, uh, in economic activities, say cooperatives, uh, uh, economic cooperatives uh, in uh, uh, small villages in uh, Latin America. And so he joked about uh, building a principle. No? He gave importance to this by calling it that this is a principle of conservation and mutation of social energy. The same way he joked about the principle of the hiding hand of course, elaborating on the invisible hand uh, of Adam Smith in uh, his development projects observed. So, Hirschman, in this book, uh, in opposition to pessimistic analysis, tried to explore ways through which small communities could reaffirm uh, uh, their rights uh, and their uh, economic independence uh, against more powerful uh, actors. And it is a very nice reading. Thanks again, Michele, uh, for your insights. I'm not sure that many people are familiar with getting ahead collectively, but cer certainly um, students of uh, Latin America uh, would be. The third book uh, in the chapter, uh, in a way, uh, returns to what Moore's point mentioned earlier about intellectual historians, starting with the words. Your heading reads, Arguments Against Intransigent Politics, The Rhetoric of Reaction. This 1991 book um, was, as you wrote, uh, devoted to dissecting and unveiling uh, the rhetorical mechanisms of intransigent political discourse. Um, you point out that this study of the rhetorical structure of arguments is an expanded examination of the misuses of the Mertonian concept of uh, the unintended consequences of social action. Um, can you share how Hirschman structured what was then his latest triadic structure, uh, also uh, the subtitle, Perversity, Futility, uh, and Jeopardy? Um, what's it all about, and how, how was it uh, all received? As, as you rightly point out, uh, it is based on the Mertonian concept of the unintended consequences of a purposive uh, social action. And Hirschman uh, noticed uh, a certain regularity in political discourse uh, on variations uh, on this uh, uh, concept of unintended consequences. And so he elaborated this uh, triad, perversity, according to which attempts at social reform will end up in uh, totally perverse effects. Attempts at bettering certain things will, will cause uh, the, the, the deterioration uh, of social mechanism or social relations. Futility is a particularly subtle variation on the theme of unintended consequences uh, because uh, it points out that uh, any attempt at uh, social reform will end up in nothing. And jeopardy is the concept according to which attempts at social reform will uh, put in danger previous uh, accomplishments. And therefore, these three arguments uh, are all built uh, as arguments against social reform, because uh, social reform will uh, produce either perverse effects, no effects at all, or will put in danger other important uh, accomplishments. And then Hirschman, in writing this book, uh, this is another example of uh, self-subversion, 
realized that there is also a progressive dimension to these three concepts, because uh, the progressive would use the perversity thesis in the negative to support the idea that change is imperative to prevent the total ruin of society, or uh, the progressive uh, character would uh, use the futility argument to say that change is unavoidable because you know the iron laws of history demand it. So there is no point in opposing change. And the jeopardy argument in the hands of the progressive uh, character would uh, uh, say that change and new reforms are necessary to solidify all the reforms. And so Hirschman tried to build this analysis as a way to criticize, disassemble and criticize uh, these uh, figures of a uh, rhetoric, this uh, rhetoric of uh, a political uh, discussion that is not necessarily based on what happens in reality. And uh, again, this was a part of Hirschman's interest in how democratic uh, conversation takes place. Let's remember that uh, he uh, wrote this uh, book in the early 90s, uh, and so he had been witnessing uh, the deterioration of political discourse in the 80s and the new wave of conservative uh, rhetoric uh, in particular. Yes, and this child of the Weimar Republic period really was a remarkable human being that speaks so much to our contemporary era. So thank you, Professor Elisevich, for your thoughtful research into his writing and ideas. Um, your final chapter, uh, The Legacy of Albert Hirschman, has so much, uh, but I especially uh, like your mention of his deep connection to his old friend and anti-fascist Kalorny, uh, respecting in him the intimate connection between intellectual openness and political activism. You note Hirschman's observation that Kalorny and friends uh, could seemingly, and I quote, prove Hamlet wrong. They were intent on showing that doubt could motivate action instead of undermining and enervating it, end quote. That comes from his 1995 a propensity for self-subversion. Can you share your own thoughts on the concept and about Hirschman and his legacy more broadly as you close out your book? Yes, well, thank you for uh, leading me through this uh, conversation. And I, I like to to end on, on this concept, proving Hamlet wrong, that Hirschman so well expressed in, in the life and ideas of uh, Eugenio Colorni. Hirschman noticed that uh, Colorni emphasized the importance of doubt as uh, a way of thinking in unorthodox ways, as uh, a, the admission uh, of uh, not having certainties uh, about uh, everything. And uh, at the same time, uh, Colorni was uh, an active anti-fascist, was uh, involved in uh, political conversation and uh, political activism. So this doubt uh, was not the basis uh, of uh, an inability to act. And this is why 
Colorni and his friends, uh, according to Hirschman, uh, seemed to be uh, dedicated to prove Hamlet wrong. Because Hamlet is the, the quintessential example of a doubt that paralyzes person, whereas uh, Colorni and uh, his uh, group of uh, fellow anti-fascists used doubt uh, as a tool to expand their uh, analysis, understanding, knowledge of the world. And also, according to Hirschman, doubt is foundational to the working of democracy because uh, it is uh, based on the fact that we had doubts that we can be open to new ideas, that we can be ready to change our mind. And it is uh, thanks to our ability to doubt and to understand that we, we don't know and perhaps we may be wrong, that we can approach democratic deliberation without uh, excessively rigid and previously formed solutions. Imagine, Hirschman wrote, imagine if uh, when we approach uh, democratic deliberation uh, and we have uh, all of us, uh, our ideas already fully formed, there is no way to improve on, on the conversation. So doubt is crucial and central uh, in Hirschman's analysis. I'm sure most of our listeners will um, will agree or at least um, take pause uh, in terms of thinking about uh, the link between doubt and democracy. Hopefully uh, they pick up your book and uh, delve into uh, Hirschman's writings. Well, let me ask you, what are you working on now? Ah, well, uh, Thank you for asking. I I am uh, I'm interested in the history of development economics. Uh, uh, this is uh, my first entry point to Hirschman, and now I would like to write the history of development economics uh, as a disciplinary field, uh, but mm. specifically in relation to three questions that uh, always emerged or disappeared, uh, and it's interesting also to see their absence uh, from the conversation. The three questions of economic growth, of course, but I insisted on it in our conversation, democracy, and uh, another question that is more recent, uh, which is environmental sustainability. Nice. Yes. For those listeners who might be interested in the history of economic thought and economic history, and, and I'm sure there's more than a few, do you have a few uh, foundational texts you can recommend as key points of departure um, just for further ideas and study in your scholarly mm. field. This is uh, another of those questions on which one could spend uh, easily uh, one hour or more. Uh, well, I would <laughs> say just to remain uh, in line with our topic today, uh, Hirschman's The Passions and the Interest is a wonderful uh, essay in the history of economic ideas. Uh, the Rhetoric of Reaction is another history of ideas, more on the political, uh, on a political perspective, but it, that's also very interesting. And then I would say, here following the example of Hirschman, go to the to the original text. I mean, it, reading the classics is uh, wonderful. Adam Smith. Book one of uh, Marx Capital, uh, Keynes uh, uh, are uh, all uh, very, very interesting uh, readings. 
And then uh, as uh, another way to address the history of economic thought, there are a couple of books that I think would be uh, enjoyable by uh, readers at large, not necessarily professionals in the history of economic thought. One is uh, uh, pretty recent by David Rasmussen, The Infidel and the Professor on the friendship uh, and the relationship between the ideas of Adam Smith and David Hume. And another one, so this is about a classical period of uh, the birth of uh, political economy in the 18th century and Scottish Enlightenment. And another one uh, on uh, the knowledge economy, but also its intellectual antecedents back to Smith, uh, is uh, Knowledge and the Wealth of Nations by David Walsh. Uh, another uh, very, very enjoyable book. Thanks for those. Uh, I'm sure uh, many people will look those up. Professor Lesevich McAlley, thank, thank you again uh, for taking so much time to talk with us about your latest book, the 2021 Columbia University Press publication, Albert O. Hirschman, an Intellectual Biography. Thank you, Keith, for taking time to converse with me on this. I really appreciate that. Thank you very much.